eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. It's been said that some men tie strings around their fingers to help them remember, and others tie ropes around their necks to help them forget. It's certainly true that our memory is a great faculty that God has given to each of us, and there are times when we really wish that our memory would work better. When we're trying to recall someone's name or maybe a telephone number or, or whatever piece of information seems to be vital and urgent at the moment, we really wish that our, our rememberer worked better. But there are also times when we remember too much. Paul, in the Philippian letter, of course, in chapter 3, verse 12, beginning, said, Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forth to what lies before, I press on. So Paul was acknowledging that there were, there were things in his life that he really needed to put behind him. That they were, in, in essence, water under the bridge. But especially those sins, those transgressions that Paul had committed, that, that God had forgiven, those were things that especially needed to be put behind him and forgotten. So I want to begin this morning with that basic understanding that our, our memory is, is a precious commodity and that God has given it to us uh, for our good, but we can use it to our detriment if we so choose. But particularly when it comes to this one act of worship, Last week, if you were here, of course, we talked about the Lord's Supper, and we plan to do that again this morning. But I want us to focus on the, the primary thrust of the Lord's Supper is to help us to remember. And it's not like it's something that we would remember experientially. We were not there when Jesus was nailed to the cross. So it's not like we can remember something that took place 2,000 years ago. But there are sufficient information in Scripture there is sufficient testimony in Scripture that describes, even in the Old Testament, the death of our Lord, that when we recall those passages and those realities, they can assist us in this aspect of our worship. When it comes time to gather around the Lord's table, then we are able to remember those things that we have read that the Lord experienced while he was on that cross. And not only while on the cross, but leading up to the cross during that passion period. You know, last week we talked about monuments and we acknowledged that there are a lot of people and especially uh, across the, the landscape of our country, there are a lot of rich people who have lavished great sums of money erecting monuments that will specifically help people to remember them once they're gone. Uh, you, you see buildings with people's name on them all the time. You see libraries and museums and parks and, and other things that are left with one purpose, and that is that the donor be remembered. But the Bible says that Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, left a memorial that overshadows all of those monuments. And again, we addressed that last Sunday morning. The greatest monument of all we have to, we have to acknowledge is the Lord's Supper. And while it really isn't a physical thing at all, all it is is just a little piece of bread in a tiny cup filled with juice. But those things constitute the greatest monument that has ever been, has ever been built. And, and Jesus left that, that memorial that overshadows all the other monuments that we can think about literally around this world. And the Lord, the Lord recognized that the, the whole purpose of that was so that our hearts and of the, his, his devoted followers can look back on that time 
and reappreciate what our Lord has done for us. Not only what Jesus did on the cross, but the fact that God was willing to give his son to make that perfect sacrifice. So that, that memorial, if you think about it, was, was dedicated without fanfare, without publicity. There was no press agent that directed the affair. There was no news photographer that was there recording all of that for posterity. All we have is the information that is given to us in Holy Scripture. But that's enough. Because still this enduring memorial, though humbly and quietly instituted, survives some 2,000 years later. And as we mentioned last Sunday morning, it will survive until the Lord comes back. Because he said, you do this until I return. In fact, the true worth and the spiritual value of this memorial, I think, could easily be discounted if we just judged it by its simple and humble beginnings. You remember it took place, this is Matthew chapter 26 specifically, but there are other passages that deal with it. It took its meaning from from that which was to transpire. And that's when its founder was put to death. Amazingly enough, it was when Jesus died that that is the focus point of our memorial feast. And still no other memorial, no other monument has so influenced the people for good. People have been changed by it. I hope every Sunday when we walk out of this building, after having partaken of the Lord's Supper, we can consider ourselves to be spiritually stronger. That our, that our minds have been, have been moved to appreciate, not just remember, but to appreciate what the Lord did when he died on that old Roman cross. The Bible says that it was the night that Jesus was betrayed and that he and his disciples had just observed the last Passover supper in that upper room in Jerusalem. And then Luke chapter 22 records this. If you want to turn there, feel free to read along. Luke chapter 22, and specifically verses 19 and 20. Dr. Luke says, and he, that's Jesus, took bread. He gave thanks and he broke it. And he gave, gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. If there was no other passage that discussed the Lord's Supper at all, We would have the reason for it clearly established in this one verse. And then in verse 20, he says, likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. You can also read a more, a fuller account in in Matthew chapter 26 and Mark chapter 14. But Jesus is stating very plainly the purpose of the ordinance. Do this, he said, in remembrance of me. Now, none of that is new to the most of you. You came in here with that information already in your, in your heads and in your hearts. We know why we do what we do when we gather here on the first day of the week to commemorate the Lord's Supper. And it's clear that Jesus intended for his disciples to remember him and especially the reason for his living and dying. And I hope that, as we're going to see in a moment, that we're doing it in a way that will enhance that objective. And the biblical record reveals that the early saints did exactly that. And then the Bible also says that after Jesus instituted the supper, disciples, of course, have continued that observance through the course of the Christian age right up until the year 2022. Right here we gather in this place to observe the Lord's Supper on Sunday morning. And the Bible says about those early church members, Luke, Dr. Luke again says in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, and most of you are familiar with Acts chapter 2. It records the birth uh, day of the, of the Lord's kingdom when the church was first established. But then as it gets to the, to the end of that chapter, it begins talking about what those early disciples did as a matter of course, as a body of people. And verse 42 of Acts 2 says, and they continued steadfastly 
in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, according to most Bible commentators that I've read, the breaking of bread there is referring to the Lord's Supper. And you'll note that it's listed along with doctrine and fellowship and prayers as integral areas of concentration by early Christians. Of the things that they were focusing on that they considered to be the most important, one of those was the breaking of bread. Why? Because it centered their hearts and their minds on the great sacrifice of Jesus. We gather here, not just on Sunday, but Wednesday nights and on other occasions. And I hope that each of us has squarely in our minds that the only reason that we as a body of people would ever gather here It's because of our appreciation and our remembrance of that old rugged cross. That's what ties us together. That is the common bond that makes us a cohesive group of people. And it also gives us a common goal or objective for our lives. There's no reason for us doing what we do. There's no reason for us spending this time here on a Sunday morning except for the fact that Jesus was willing to die for us on that old rugged cross. So after Jesus instituted the supper, the disciples continued that observance throughout the course of the Christian age, as we do today. Regularly, that is weekly, the Bible says the saints were to meet for this purpose. Last week, we looked at Acts chapter 20 and verse 7. Let me mention the the, the content of that verse again. And upon the first day of the week, the Bible says, when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them ready to depart on the morrow. Notice again, they they came together in order to break bread. There doesn't have to be really any debate, any argument as to when it was observed because it was on the first day of the week. And every week has a first day in it. So it it must be thus observed today. But also the church received additional instruction about the Lord's Supper because it is that important. Take just a moment, if you will, and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We looked at a couple of verses from this chapter last Sunday morning. I want us to go back to it and notice a few others. Because Paul is really kind of giving them a blueprint for what the church needs to be doing when they come together in a corporate worship setting. And and if you know anything about the first letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, you also know that he's telling them, here's some things that you ought not to be doing. They had really adulterated the the worship service in the Corinthian church. And so Paul is is writing and warning them against doing that. And and we'll see that there's some teeth in some of these warnings, but especially in chapter 11, look at uh, verses 23 through 26. First of all, 23 through 26, for I've received from the Lord, Paul writes, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he He broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is is the new covenant in my blood, this do also as as often as you drink it in, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he come. In this paragraph, again, the the church at Corinth was given a detailed account of how the Lord's Supper was begun. And Paul is trying to kind of clue them in into its, as it pertains to its true significance. And we need to note, I think, when we read these verses that they were to remember the death of Jesus, but they were to be strengthened to give their lives for this cause that he had so willingly died for. 
If we look at the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross simply as an historical event without appreciating the personal application that it needs to have in our lives, we've kind of missed the whole point, haven't we? This ought to make a difference in the way we live. This ought to make a difference in the way we think. It ought to make a difference in the way we speak. Everything in life is changed because of what we're doing here on Sunday morning. Jesus died on that old rugged cross. But also, as we mentioned last Sunday morning, we do ourselves, I think, a disfavor if we only emphasize his sacrifice on the cross and fail to remember that the Lord said, till I come again. We look forward to his return. And also the the general resurrection of all of God's people. So all of this is a part of Paul's instructions to the Corinthian congregation. So this memorial to the death of Christ ought to be sacred and holy to every child of God. Let me say that again because that's so important. It ought to be sacred and holy to every child of God. That doesn't mean that the emblems within themselves that we can buy at virtually any store that those things are holy while they're on the shelf, but they have been sanctified and dedicated to a holy purpose. They become holy in the sense that we are using them for a sacred purpose. And that is to represent the Lord's, his body and his shed blood. And yet Paul, right here in 1 Corinthians 11, is saying that there were those in Corinth who had perverted that memorial feast, And and their behavior had just been pointed out by Paul specifically. Take a look at verses 17 through 22. I'm not going to read all of it. But but that's where Paul was kind of correcting some mistaken ideas about what you need to accomplish with the Lord's Supper and how it needs to be observed. One of the things that he deals with here, I will tell you this, was uh, the the rich were uh, among those that were feasting before the supper even to the point of actual drunkenness. And Paul says the poor are kind of sitting over in the corners watching the rich people eat and kind of wishing they had some of that. And uh, that also implies, by the way, that they were turning the Lord's Supper into a common meal. That was one of their problems. So Paul then said that because, I think we mentioned this last Sunday, because of this abuse of the Lord's Supper, look at verse 30. Many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. All of that is to be taken with a spiritual dimension in mind. Paul is saying that you can become spiritually weakened and you can eventually die spiritually if you don't get this right. If you don't get your head on straight about what this memorial feast is all about. It's that important. Because if we forget what the central focus is in our Christian lives, there's no real reason for living it anymore. I think that's really Paul's implication here. And then he continued, look at verses 27 through 29. Therefore, Paul writes, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who, here's the scary part, and I mean that quite literally. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. There's some translations, instead of the word judgment, use the word condemnation or damnation. Making the language even stronger. Now keep in mind that this admonition has to do with the manner of taking. It's not dealing with the the person who's partaking, whether or not they're worthy. And I think that's one of the greatest mistakes and misunderstandings that we can have about the Lord's Supper. 
I've known people over the years of my Christian life and my ministry who decide that if I feel unworthy on a particular Sunday morning, I'm not going to take of the Lord's Supper. That's not what Paul is talking about. There is none of us, we need to get this on straight, there is none of us that is worthy to sit at supper with the king. But although we are unworthy, we can still eat and drink with our Lord in a worthy manner. That is, worthily, as the King James says, by properly discerning the Lord's body and blood. And, and we can be spiritually blessed in doing just that. In fact, I, I'll go to the other extreme and say this. It is when a person is mostly acutely aware of the sin in their lives, and when they are most aware of their own spiritual unworthiness, that's when we need the spiritual strength that comes from partaking of the Lord's Supper the most. That is not the time to abstain. That's the time when we need communion with God even more. You see, it's the Lord's plan that a Christian leave the Lord's Supper with renewed strength gained by our our nearness to Christ. And it is sometimes referred to as communion for that reason. We are communing with the Lord in this memorial feast. And also with the fellowship of the saints and just the, the due homage that we have paid to the Lord. All of that ought to be spiritually strengthening to the child of God. The strength comes not from the literal bread or the fruit of the vine. We, we mentioned that last Sunday morning. If you came in here hungry, you're going to leave hungry. Because the Lord's Supper was not designed to satiate our physical appetite. It was there with a spiritual purpose in mind. So that strength comes not from the literal bread or from the fruit of the vine, but from our understanding of what those, those emblems represent, their, their real spiritual significance. This renewal of our dedication each week helps to keep us steadfast in his service. And I think that we ought to spend more time thanking God for it. Let me mention the four-dimensional aspect of the Lord's Supper, and then we'll be through. Christians, I, I think when we read Scripture, and especially 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we're made aware that there is a four-dimensional aspect to the Lord's Supper. There's an inward look, there's an outward look, there's a backward look, and a forward look. Here's what I mean by that. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes in verses 28 as well as verse 26, but let a man examine himself. There's the inward look. When we're partaking of the Lord's Supper, we need to be examining ourselves, our own relationship with God, and whether or not we're partaking in a way that is in fact worthy. And so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For as often as you eat the bread and drink this cup, you proclaim or show, there's the outward look. We are proclaiming to the world what is the central focus of the Christian life. The Lord's death, we're looking backward to his death until he comes, there's the forward look. And then remember Luke chapter 22, verse 19, when the Lord himself said, this do in remembrance of me. That is a clear reference to the backward look that every one of us are involved in when we partake of the Lord's Supper. So the conclusion is there's a lot of looking around, isn't there? Or at least there ought to be. We ought to be looking backward and forward. We ought to be looking inward. We also ought to be looking upward to the God who made all of this possible. Through this memorial, the Christian is able to view again the hours of anguish that our Lord spent even before he was hanging on the cross. Think about the anguish, the psychological, the emotional anguish that he went through in the Garden of Gethsemane. The betrayal by a false friend. The cries of the mob demanding his blood. The pseudo-trial by false courts. The scourging. 
the mock royal robes, the crown of thorns, and then the agonizing death on that cruel Roman cross. You see, at the table of the Lord, our eyes are lifted from the bread and from the fruit of the vine to the spiritual things that are symbolized by those simple items. It really, really is a wonderful monument to the sacrifice of our Lord. We don't have to go out every week and say, where are we going to get the money for this monument? No, it's relatively inexpensive. We don't have to worry for the most part about its availability. There are some countries where I've been where that was a concern, but not here. We don't have to worry about the little piece of bread and the fruit of the vine that we're going to be using as emblems of something that is far greater than those emblems themselves in a physical sense. Here we are at the table of the Lord. Our eyes are lifted from the bread and the fruit of the vine. The Lord who made our spiritual lives possible. Hearts are turned away from the transient things of this life to the world that is yet to come. You know, as a mother cherishes the curl clip from the head of her lost and lamented baby, as a widow prizes the memorabilia of her late husband, even so Christians value the Lord's Supper far, far above the earthly ingredients that comprise it. The materials involved are in no way comparable to the wonderful benefits that can be derived from the simple observance of the Lord's Supper. So may no child of God ever forget the sacrifice it memorializes. May no Christian forget what image it sets before us as we in our minds picture the Lord hanging on the cross. May no disciple forget to be present when the Lord and when the table is spread for the supper of our Lord and when children of God gather to pay homage to our Lord and Savior. One quick New Testament illustration And then we're through. Remember over in John chapter 11, one of the most interesting accounts I think found in scripture. The Bible says when the Lord got to Bethany, by the way, we, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they were two sisters and a brother. They were very close to the Lord. There was a common friendship between them. And the Lord had been told that if you had gotten here sooner, Lazarus would not have died. I think it was Martha who made that comment. And the Lord knew even before one, one of the accounts tells us that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead when he got into the city and to their home. But, but really want us to focus on what happened after that. In John chapter 12, John 11 is that what records all of that. But John chapter 12 and verse 2, later the Lord had returned to Bethany And here's what the Bible says about that. And there they made him, that's Christ, to supper, and Martha served. No surprises there. We'd be surprised if somebody except Martha were serving the dinner because that seems to be her gift. But then notice the last of that particular statement. But Lazarus sat at the table with him. Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And now they're having a, the the least we can do is to have Jesus over for dinner. And so they invite the Lord to come into their home, and the Bible says Lazarus sat at the table with him. Think of what that must have meant to the resurrected Lazarus. Jesus had raised him, and now he can sit at the table with the one who had done the raising, who had raised him from the dead. Now, the spiritual application of that is simple. Have you considered the fact that the Lord also raised us from spiritual death, from our sins, Paul makes that point, by the way, in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 and 2. 
And after we've been raised from, from baptism to walk in newness of life, there's a table that spread in honor of the one who did the raising, the one who raised us from spiritual death. And we are privileged to sit at the table and to have supper with the King of Kings. I have to wonder what would have kept Lazarus from that association. What would have kept Lazarus? What would he have considered to be a good excuse? Jesus is coming to dinner. I got other things. I got plans. No, Lazarus, I'm convinced, went to his second death with a deep appreciation for what Jesus had done for him. Nothing, nothing would have kept him from having supper with the king. And I wonder what we can sometimes allow us to be separated from that supper as well. The message that I'm really seeking to write on your heart and on mine is that we ought not to allow anything frivolous or incidental to separate us from this spiritual feast and all the other avenues of worship that the Lord has so lovingly provided. But as every other avenue of acceptable worship, it's to be done only in the way that God has instructed and it's to be done with the attitude and with our hearts in the right place while we are partaking. That's both in spirit and in truth, John chapter 4, verse 24 says. Someone has said, when I come to the Lord's table, I come not because I am worthy and not for any righteousness of mine, for I have sinned and fallen short of what by God's help I might have been. I come not that there is any magic in partaking of the symbols for Christ's body and blood, but I come because Christ. He bids me come. It is his table and he invites me. But I come because he, he bids me come. And I come because it's a memorial to him. As, as oft as it is done in remembrance of him and when I remember him, his life, his sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection, I find myself humbling myself in his presence and bowing before him in worship. I come because here is portrayed Christian self-denial, and I am taught very forcibly the virtues of sacrifice on behalf of another, sacrifice that has salvation in it. I come because here I have the opportunity to acknowledge my own worthiness, and every Sunday morning I have the opportunity to make a fresh new start. I come because here I find comfort and peace. And I come because I rise from this place with new strength and courage and power to live for the one who died for me. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. See from his head, his hands, his feet, Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, where thorns compose so rich a crown? We are privileged to have supper with the king. Take your emblems out, if you will, and we'll observe the Lord's Supper. <clears throat> 